You're starting with the paradoxes already. Damn, it's only downhill from here. How do you pronounce your last name? Bourgeoisie. Bourgeoisie. Yeah, so, I mean, the French tell me how to pronounce it. Um, they say it's it's bourgeois. Bourgeois. But, you know, I'm like, mate, I'm Australian. My last name is bourgeois. <laughs> like bushwhacker. <laughs> bushwhacker. <laughs> but isn't... Isn't bo- bush bushwhack isn't bourgeois like high class? Bourgeois high class? Yeah. Like so, a proletariat or something? Yeah, I think it's like upper middle class. Like bourgeois pig is something that people have used to describe me specifically. Um Well that doesn't sound very nice. I know, but it it's pretty funny. I've got a story about that. Like at Sydney Uni, um, you know, some sort of Marxist group of activists were like oh yeah man sign the petition i'm like yeah man for the cause you know for sure and i write down drew bourgeois and they're like you taking the piss man do you think this is a joke i'm like man by name and by reputation you know wow did you have to pull out your license and say yeah yeah something like that it's a common problem it's still a bit hot for me yeah 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 my um my good friend is um first generation australian but his parents are japanese yeah. He always makes fun of me for not being able to drink hot tea. <laughs> Man up, white boy. <laughs> I can't do it. I have to wait ages. Yeah. I have to wait ages for the tea to cool down. It's funny, like, um, on so I do these um, Zen sessions in Australia, right? It's a, it's a one-week retreat. Um, and first thing in the morning, um, as part of a, a dojo ceremony, um, you serve... T- you get tea served to you and you and you drink it Is that in this like kind a tea of, ceremony yeah totally um but people in this space like they drink really hot tea really fast and so you get these kind of big sips it's all very like intense but it's good because you're really tired first thing in the morning at like 3 a.m and then this these sips of tea these intense sips will just kind of give you this energy to make hot it through shock. until sun <laughs> What time do you start in the morning, did you say? Uh, like 3 a.m. or something? Yeah. Or um, 4 a.m.? 3, 4. I mean, some um, softer retreats you can start at 6, but I mean, it never really starts, does it? <laughs> <laughs> so you're like right into the meditation stuff. You've done heaps of retreats. Because I think I first heard about the Vipassana retreat from you. Yeah. In the Blue Mountains. Yeah, that's interesting. <clears throat> I have... I've. I've never done a Vipassana in the Blue Mountains, but I certainly have a lot of friends who've done it. I I do um, Zazen practice. Um, so there's a community here in um, Sydney, the Sydney Zen Center. Um, it's part of a, a tradition um, that goes from Australia to Hawaii, America, and then to uh, Japan, China, and India. Um, and from there, I have no idea. Um, but... Yeah, so it's it's slightly different, but I think you'd find that a lot of the forms of Vipassana and of um, a Zen session are very similar. Zazen's pretty hardcore because you have to sit in a spe- really specific position. Is that right? I don't really know much about it, but from what I've heard, you have to sit full lotus, and that's a really strict thing. Is that correct, or am I misguided? Well, I mean, how how are you sitting right now? Well, normally, well, like literally right now, I'm just sitting. Yeah, I mean, that's it. <laughs> so that's Zazen. Uh, well, I mean, it can be. I mean, it's some uh, traditions and some monasteries that have very strict rules about that. You know, there's definitely some uh, Japanese and Korean monasteries that I've visited 
where you have to be sitting full lotus um otherwise you're not doing meditation yeah that's what i'm thinking like yeah but uh, i think actually if you push those teachers even just the slightest little bit they would crumble on that instantaneously because there's only one moment for realization it has nothing to do with you sitting or not sitting you know um upon realization there's not an inch of earth left on the ground so how can you sit Whoa. I think that's a bit far out of my realm, but that's the stuff I'm interested in. <laughs> oh, man, it's so good to talk to you. Thank yeah. you so much for doing this. Oh, man, it's my pleasure. It's I know it's a bit such weird. a good idea. We got the microphones on and we're sipping on tea. And I, don't know if the, I don't know if the weather's really... I don't know if it's good for philosophical talks, but we'll just see what happens. It's kind of, kind of grey, and I reckon that's good for... Um, uh, for philosophical for thought, getting you know. profound. Yeah, I mean, like you look in Europe and they spend so much of their year inside because it's snowing outside, and they're all existentialists. And then Australian—that's that's where existentialism comes yeah. from. Yeah, I mean, it's, there's Australian tr- uh, philosophical traditions that are really realist, you know. And I, I just have a theory that's because we're too busy playing cricket and going to the beach. You know, <laughs> the weather's too bloody good for us to be existential. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good theory. So, I want to ask you the forbidden question. Uh Uh-oh. What is Zen? Uh, Am I allowed to ask that? Yeah. Are you allowed to say anything about it? Yeah, sure. I mean, I I guess I don't know. That's a pretty cliched answer, but uh, it's there's something really truthful about the honesty of not knowing. Um, You know, you can find yourself in in any situation. And really, really touching where you are. Uh, I mean, I guess that's it. And it's not a it's not a linguistic thing, but it also doesn't matter what you say about it linguistically, because um, it's not not a linguistic thing. I love this uh, blog post that you had, man. Your blog. There's so many hairy stories on it. You're like <laughs> chasing off monkeys, running down hills bare feet, climbing bloody like a waterfall stuck in the desert it's just it's just non-stop action-packed but one of the stories that really stood out for me was the showdown with the zen master or i don't i don't remember it exactly i'd love to hear you sort of make another comment on it so what happened you went in and you said something like or he said something like you have to do 200 bows to the buddha and you said yes yeah i mean it was it was a bit more than 200 so, More I mean, than 200. Yeah, I, I can tell the story if you want. Push, I'd love to hear it. I usually from tell you. it up after a few beers, but yeah. <laughs> well, podcast seems like a good opportunity. Yeah. Um, so I was in Korea, South Korea, <clears throat> uh, and I went to this mountain, uh, Gedeongsan, um, and I wanted to get uh, camping and, and just kind of spend some time on my own. I had my tent. Um, but I got off the wrong bus at the wrong place and I'm just there in rural Korea and everything's kind of written in these foreign characters. Uh, but I did see it's one... It's going to be a traveler's nightmare. I know. It was one of those situations. Um, and then uh, I saw a sign that said temple stay. I thought, okay, well, that's English. I'm just going to go to this temple and see if someone speaks English. And so I went there and, um, and you know, this one monk smoke, uh, spoke a little bit of English, Wonju. Uh, and he said, oh, um, you know, you want to stay here? You want to stay here? I said, oh, well, actually, I'm looking for a camping ground. And he kind of didn't understand me. And, and then after a while, I was like, well, actually, I'm really poor. 
So staying in monasteries from my experience has been really cheap and really rewarding. So maybe it's, I didn't want to, I thought I was done with Zen, but I was like, when an opportunity presents itself. Um, <laughs> so uh, he said, oh, you should meet this grandmaster. Um, so I went, uh, uh, Daiwan was his name, you know, this, uh, anyway. So I went with the translator and we met uh, this grandmaster and we're sitting there and um, there's a translator and, and a few other people. Um, and he says, oh, do you want to stay here? I said, yeah, sure. I mean, that would be great. He said, oh, do you have an experience doing meditation? I said, oh, a little bit. So you're sort of downplaying your experiences there. <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm just spewing words. Um, <laughs> but he said, how do you meditate? And I said, like this. And he said, oh, if you want to stay here, you have to do 3,000 bows um, overnight. Um, Three thousand. Yeah, so it's it's a full prostration. Um, so they have the practice in in Korean Zen of doing. Um, so prostration is uh, when you're standing, uh, and you uh, drop to your knees and then put your forehead on the ground, lift your hands above your head, and then stand back up. Um, and and that, so that's that's one. And that's one. That's one bow to the Buddha. Yeah. Whoa. So I, I said, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll do this, no worries. Not really thinking about it. Um, and so I started, these nuns, really lovely nuns, they kind of brought me some, uh, some soy sauce water because I, they were like, you need hydration. And, and I had, you know those beads, like the meditation beads where when you, when you on do one. On necklace. Yeah, and yeah. when you do one, you know, mantra or something like this, you just flick to the next bead. Um, I had a big set of these that was 1000 and kind of rolled onto the floor sprawled onto it and so um, that's how you kept count because that was my other question how do you keep count of so many yeah just one but i mean i only did one you know uh but uh so i did my first few hundred thinking i'm just gonna go at it you know i'm just not gonna stop i'm just gonna hit it as hard as i can yeah um and i probably got to the first few hundred and then my legs just w didn't want to do it anymore i was in the most pain i'd ever been it's like doing three thousand squats or, or something like that you know um and and i had a long time to go and it, it it started to get quite late so the the kind of monks and nuns finished chanting maybe 10 o'clock at night and and then i'm there on my own and i'm kind of staring at this buddha that i don't believe in doing this really intensive practice um physically mentally spiritually i was just i mean i just was uh destroyed there was nothing left i was just completely uh out to sea <laughs> and uh and i'm thinking why am i doing this for this kind of thing that i don't believe in and, but there was this whole crisis of that and um sure enough I mean, like, I remember just, like, stopping, after, you know, all, all these ways through and just sitting there and just going, I'm going to give up, I'm going to give up. And I didn't. And, you know, I wouldn't be able to tell this story if I um, didn't know 100% that I did every one of those prostrations, you know. So you did a 1,000 of these Buddha bows? Uh, 3,000. You did all 3,000? Yeah. Bloody hell, mate. I couldn't walk for a couple of days, actually. It was... It was quite intense but then i got to stay there for three weeks um and meditate for 16 hours a day <laughs> <laughs> wow might need some meditation to even even out all that activity 
Did you have heaps of like props? Were you walking around and everyone would sort of whisper like in the in the cafeteria, oh, that's the guy that, you know, did it? Yeah, I mean, so they'd all kind of done it, you know, I, I guess, but they were, there seemed to be this uh, something special about someone who was so young and from a foreign country just coming in and doing it. White guy. Straight away, yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, I just think it was because I was young, I just didn't even have to think about it. Like now I would, you know, my back would hurt more or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. That's amazing. I don't know. I don't know how you do that. Well, I, I mean, I, I don't know how I did it either, but I'm I'm really glad that I did. You know, I, you know, meditation is not, in my experience, about finding these peak experiences. You know, it's the same with travel. You know, it's not really about going to the waterfall or about going to Disneyland. It's all the stuff in between. You know, um, and so if you're kind of meditating and you're looking for these special effects, you know, it's not it. I I once on a um, retreat went into my my Roshi my teacher and I told her about this profound vision that I'd had she just kind of said let it go ding a ding a ding ring the bell get out of here whoa and it's it's true though like it's kind of not what it's about but I'm glad I had that experience because if you don't have those experiences those kind of intensified experiences there's nothing to keep you coming back you can't just be drinking tea and talking on podcasts all day (laughs) (laughs) well don't look at me (laughs) so you've done so much travel most recently solomon islands is that right yeah what's it like over there what took you over there Um, meditation or something else yeah no so i uh, i heard this uh this music um this they kind of play these slit drums, you know, these slit log drums. Um, and it, would, it was recorded in about the 1960s by this French guy. And um, a friend of mine actually found it in Melbourne uh, Library. Sent me these recordings and I said, wow, this is some of the best music I've ever heard. I just have to go and check this out. And a friend of mine also. Um, so is this indigenous or traditional sort of sounding stuff? Yeah. So it's the traditional music of the Ara people from the South Malata Island. Um, but a friend of mine also last year went to the Solomon Islands chasing this kind of incredible music from North Malata and he had a really amazing time. So he was helpful. He gave me a lot of notes. Um, but so I got there and, um, I ended up in kind of living in this village in this Ariari culture. And I mean, they told me that I was the first white man to go there since kind of the French missionaries and stay with them or something like this. Um, and it was an amazing experience. I mean, they're just so lovely. And they pretty much live uh, still probably very similar to how they did 100 years ago or something. They build all their houses from things they find in the bush. They they eat a little bit of what they can farm, but mainly what they can find in the bush and, and what they can fish. And um, Yeah, and they still have their traditional customs. Um, so how did you have the connection to make contact with them or did you have someone you knew beforehand to arrange it like these friends you were telling you you're talking about did they already know them no so i actually didn't use any of the contacts um from the my friend who went there last year it's but again it's just one of those things where you you turn up and and in the kind of ambiguity of it all in the midst of not knowing the the gem emerges and you end up exactly where you need to be you know i just met some people who and played them this music and they said oh 
that's from my culture, you know, and you can go and stay with my uncle and you can just sleep on the floor and, and he'll feed you and like you can take you to all these things, you know. Was there a language barrier? Like do they speak English or? So they speak pidgin, which is like a. Pidgin, for real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's amazing, man. Like it's funny. It's like it's kind of similar to African English in that, you know, they kind of British uh, English came over with the colonizers. And then once they got rid of the colonizers, they were unified by the English language. Um, but because it's no longer connected to this kind of Queen's English thing, it just becomes this other variant. So, I mean, things like uh, who name belong you, right? That's what is your name? And it's like, wow, who name belong you? Yeah, yeah. So you can you can understand them, but it's somehow a different language. Yeah, some people it was hard to communicate with, but a lot of older people were there um, and did schooling kind of when the British were there or whatever, and they had a bit of bit of English chops, which is helpful for me because my pigeon's not very good. <laughs> pigeon, wow. What was the weather like? Did you go swimming? It's hot, right? It's really hot, but I was there during um, cyclone season. Um, which actually delayed my plans a lot. It's this kind of thing, right? Like, you know, you say to someone, oh, I want to get to this place. And they're like, oh, it's pretty remote, but you take this ship, you know? And so I go, I say, oh, well, when does the ship come? You say, yeah, we have no idea. What you have to do is go to the shipping yard and just ask enough people just hanging around until you find out. And so, so I ask like all these people and they all give me different answers, you know? <laughs> Uh, Whoa. But then I go to the office and then the office is closed because there was a public holiday five days ago. And then and then you slowly you figure out, okay, it's not going to happen for a while, so I'm going to find a different way. And But they have this different consciousness about time there, right? It's They live on these islands. They live in really remote conditions. They have a lot of access problems. So your ability to get places to travel through space is contingent on uh, events happening. If the ship comes, then you'll go to this other place. If the ship doesn't come, then you just have to stay where you are. And so, you know, for their like annual leave or whatever, for their jobs, the people who have jobs, they get three days travel time and then they come up and then if they're not there within that three days, then that's kind of okay as well. They just have this totally different consciousness around reporting time and being somewhere at a particular time. It's so different to hear. I sort of want to plant a flag about you know, the concept of time, because another one of your blog posts really just struck me hard. And it was the one, one of them about time. But before you like get onto that, I want to just say that this edge, this travel edge that you have is a pretty sharp edge. I don't think many people I've known in my life have that much of a sharpness or ability to throw yourself to the wind and trust a foreign country so hard surely you've run into some pretty hairy situations where you're just like this is way outside of my comfort zone like what's driving you is it is it so much rewarding to be that far outside of your comfort zone or are you just someone who's prone to being that much more open than the average blow joe like me joe blow <laughs> <laughs> um i i think um you know, it's there's so much fear, and and so much um, subconscious, uh, a kind of cultural animosity that we have. You know, it's just you go to a place like the Solomon Islands, and everyone is really different 
to us. The culture is really different. Um, but time and time again, it's been reproven to me that humans are fundamentally caring for each other and fundamentally hospitable. And all of this kind of political stuff that we have on top is actually just some sort of fabrication of the mind. It doesn't actually exist. When you put people in a room together, they just always will care for each other. Um, so yeah, I've definitely had hairy situations, situations where I've gone, this is just too far. You know, I've had, uh, in Egypt, I was in this tuk-tuk and this guy took me to a random place and he's trying to kind of mug me and I have to, you know, he stole my sunglasses and I'm like, jokes on you, they're worth like a dollar. And, um, and, and definitely, um, other experiences like in this latest trip, uh, I had gone on a trip with these guys from the village to, uh, this ancestral island. We were coming back in this outboard motor. You know, it should be five people on this boat, but they've got about 10. And and then we started to run out of fuel and it's raining and it just turns to the middle of the night and we're in open waters. And I'm, I'm kind of there, Whoa. like soaking wet, kind of looking at the horizon. And I had the moment of like uh, absurd happiness, you know, when things just seem so flooded it's just a it's a miracle you know i mean i I guess like it's not i mean i do tend to to kind of chase these um extreme conditions but it's not really because i want to um have uh, those experiences or, or or whatever it's just i would rather hang out with the local people um and sometimes i'm lucky at that sometimes i'm not you know you must have been to so many countries because you were in Africa for a bit as well, right? Yeah, in um, 2016, I spent a fair bit of time in Africa. I really loved it there. And was that the same sort of approach, like immersing yourself in the local culture and trusting the hospitality of the local vibe? Yeah, I mean, I went there to study um, the hand drums, like percussion, you know, Africa and drums, who'd have known, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, and so my drum teacher, who was this guy that I kind of got connected to, said oh you can stay at my dad's place in this village and so i was literally living in the sticks and it was amazing i mean i loved it there the people are so friendly and you walk past everyone's like oh brawny you're brawny white man white man you know um but and i i feel like i was having a pretty legitimate experience i was at the same risk of malaria or more risk of malaria than the local people and i'm eating under the same conditions you can get rice there but you can't get this you, you know you're definitely not going to get any quinoa and so there's limits on what you can eat and what's I'm, quinoa yeah mate? couldn't tell you no it's like a, a grain i think it's it's really you find it in the health food aisle at Woolworths. Apparently. oh okay <laughs> um but so and then i i kind of got a girlfriend there as well and so i was i was staying with her and living with her family and i mean i just i feel like these cultural kind of barriers like the more willing you are to um to let go of your standards of comfort the more of an amazing experience you'll have you know um that and luck <laughs> wow was there pressure from the family for marriage yeah i mean i it's kind of a sad story i I tried to you don't um, have to share it if well, you don't want i mean i mean sharing is caring oh yeah it's but it, it's also important because we don't actually get this perspective as, as Australians. Um, yeah. So I came back to Australia and I was still in contact with this girl and we really like wanted to pursue things. Um, and I applied for a tourist visa for her 
Um, and I sponsored it. I got my dad to transfer me a lot of money. So it looked like I had, you know, ample to support us for this three month tourist visa that we were applying for. And, um, it got rejected. And, and so I, I called a immigration lawyer. She said that people from Africa actually just can't come to Australia full stop. Right. Um, yeah. So it's like in Australia, we, because we don't have people immigrating that are under our care, we don't actually realize how, um, how blatantly racist and discriminatory and, uh, and debilitating for so many people, these kind of border enforcement things can be. Um, yeah, I mean, I felt like that was a violation of my rights as a, as a, um, Australian person, not being able to bring someone that I cared about into my country, into my home. Um, it's just so different to so many cultures where they'll leave the door open, (laughs) Yeah, you know, and really welcome you. It's an honor to welcome people into your house. And yet we have these kind of, uh, these policies yeah yeah i spent a little bit of time in africa when i was much younger i think i was like 12 years old because my brother was on missionary there oh wow and we had a family holiday to visit him on the missionary ship oh, so wow. we were doing evangelism work going out <laughs> and uh preaching the good word of old baby jesus yeah and uh total culture shock yeah like, man. so many stories but where did you go from do that you, do you remember yeah we went to ghana Oh, man, that's where I went. Yeah, and yeah. then a little bit up to Togo for a bit. And then the stopover was in South Africa, uh, Johannesburg. So just between those two. And that was a long time ago. I think I was only 12 years old. But so many things stuck in my mind from that. Yeah. just Even just something as simple as the roads. You yeah. come back and you feel like you're driving on glass. It's that smooth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's funny. Like I, For me, that's like something that's really important about travel, you know, because it, it does cost a lot of money and it does seem like this selfish thing. But, I mean, you go and experience people's culture and you live with them how they live and you see what's important for them and what they care about and, and, and who cares for them. And, and then you come back here and something like appreciating the roads, right? Yeah. I mean, it's the same with, with meditation. You know, to some extent, you're, you're sitting there on a retreat for a long time. And then you come back into your daily life and you somehow have this kind of residual uh, appreciation of the quality of simple things. Kind of like if that's a good thing to try and do with your life is to appreciate everything. (laughs) Yeah. Like that's a pretty, like if you could do that, you'd be basically acing life, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if there's any winning or losing, but there's definitely like a thing of, you know, like if you're suffering, you know, like, you know, you break up with a girl or something or, and then you feel really sad and then, and then you realize that this sadness is a source of creativity or joy even. That's pretty wild. You know, the the world's pretty cool. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So what do you think? I'm going to ask you another forbidden question. Oh, damn. (laughs) You can't get off the hook for this one. Because you're into meditating. I think I'm allowed to ask you this question. Are you enlightened? Or do you want to talk about what enlightenment is at all? Yeah. If it is even possible. I mean, the immediate answer to the question, are you enlightened, would be... 
which is a no, right? I mean, <laughs> I, but I, like I got into um, into this heated discussion in this monastery in, in Japan after this intense thing had happened with this woman and she was a nun um, who was a bra-burning feminist who actually just moved to Japan and studied under this Roshi, this kind of teacher. What was her ethnicity? Uh, she's American, right? Right, yeah. Um, and then... She kind of went from this kind of liberation movement to this really controlled life. I mean, when the bell rings, you do whatever you do and whatever the teacher tells you, you kind of you do that. And um, she got really offended when I said, you know, there is no enlightenment. It's all bullshit. And I'm quoting the, the fucking Buddha there, man. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's that's, a very, that's a very common response to people talking about enlightenment. Yeah. I mean, the Heart Sutra, which is like the kind of core of it or something... Um, it says, you know, there is there is enlightenment, therefore there is no enlightenment. There's this kind of logic going on, you know, um, is therefore not is. And I was I was just stating that not as this kind of offensive thing, but that for her was like not acceptable for me to say there's no enlightenment. And to some extent, I understand that because I mean, who am I to say that? You know, actually, I think last time I saw you was at a Chris Abrahams gig in Sydney and you just finished your degree in philosophy. You were about to go off on this wild trip and we got into a discussion about non-duality, about like there's no boundary between subject and world. And that, and I had not heard any of this. So I was just, it was all bouncing off my thick skull, but I've since then checked out all these guys like Alan Watts and, all those sorts of cats. And I can sort of get my head around this idea of non-duality. So, I mean, I'm not saying I can have an experience of it. That's a different thing again. But that's what some people, I guess, call enlightenment, is having that moment of slipping away between the boundary of you being in the world. You are rather everywhere. So have you had those sorts of experiences when you're meditating? Yeah, or I mean, otherwise or otherwise yeah, not. Yeah. No, totally. I mean that's that's the thing, isn't it? it? You know, they talk about emptiness. I think it's sunyata in Sanskrit in Buddhism. It's like the realization that there never was anything. And in that space that, you know, when the when the mind falls away, uh when the body falls away, when self falls away. So, okay. Dogen Zenji, um, 13th century Zen monk from Japan. Um, he says, um, to study Zen is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is for mind and body of self and other to fall away. And that falling away to exist timelessly. For me, that's I mean, that's a lived experience to have mind and body of self and other just disintegrate into into emptiness and it's not like this kind of philosophical thing of oh well there is nothing you know don't turn nothingness into something it's it's more a, a state of being and it's i mean it's radiantly universal I don't, 
I don't really have logical words to describe that, but I, I kind of feel okay about saying it because I, I just think it's true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love talking about this sort of stuff. I think this is great. And I know I'm, I'm sort of aware of how, how funny it can sound because you're trying to, you're trying to talk about something which really essentially can't be talked about. It can't fit into words. But yeah. So are you enlightened? Yes. <laughs> but I'm not going to say so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, you know, you know, these koans. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you before, have you done koans? Yeah. So I've, I'm a formal koan student, I guess, in, in the, um, the Diamond Sangha tradition. Um, I actually have my, my book here. So oh, maybe yeah. I can like read. Yeah, for sure. One of these koans just to give you a little idea of what this, what it's about. I mean, my, my teacher said to me once when I first started to kind of work with these koans, uh, it's a question or an object of contemplation. Uh, and you just drop it into your mind, but the mind can't answer the question, right? You hear the mind ask the question, but it can't answer it. You just have to sit there in... in so the answer is an experience, not a thought. Yeah, something like that. Or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what the answer is. You're the one studying it. Maybe I'll do... Um, Chu Chi raises one finger. Case three of the Wu Man Khan. What is it? Chu Chi... Uh, Chu Chi raises one finger. So Chu Chi is a Zen master? Yeah. Okay. Whenever Chu Chi was asked a question, he simply raised one finger. One day a visitor asked Chu Chi's attendant what his master preached. The boy raised a finger. Hearing of this, Chu Chi cut off the boy's finger with a knife. As he ran from the room, screaming with pain, Chu Chi called to him. When he turned his head, Chu Chi raised a finger. The boy was suddenly enlightened. When Chu Chi was about to die, he said to his assembled monks, I received this one finger Zen from Chen Lung. I used it all my life, but never used it up. With this, he entered into eternal rest. And Wu Men, the, the compiler's comment. The enlightenment of Chu Chi and the boy has nothing to do with the end of a finger. If you can realize this, then Chiang Lung, Chung Chi, the boy, and you yourself are all run through with a single skewer. Chung Lung made a fool of old Chu Chi, who cut the boy with a sharp blade. Just as the deity Ching, Chu Lung raised his hand, and Hua Shan, with his many ridges, split in two. So yeah, I don't, I don't really know what that means, but <laughs> whoa. But you know, the 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 center of that case is definitely this this one finger Zen. Yeah, I mean, you know, you asked me, what is enlightenment? So you could have right, held up one finger. Yeah, but you know, there's some also something in here. I mean, he's Chu Chi's kind of really giving this lesson. If if you imitate that. I mean, you'll lose your life. You'll chop off your finger. Yeah. You know? There's another comment in that. Like, well, what is the boy's enlightenment? I mean, for me, it'd be like... Ah! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine what it's like to get a finger chopped off. Yeah. It's fucking painful, I reckon. <laughs> yeah. Especially then to have your, your master, like, tap you on the shoulder and say, you know, make more comments on it. 
Yeah. But it's funny, I always talk way too much about these things, you know. It's perfectly all right. I've given you free license, man. I know, I know. I mean, we're in the same boat. It's just that you're like a thousand times more experienced. <laughs> I know, man. I mean, we, we're both born right now. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's zen. Yeah, yeah. That's zen, Baby bro. Baby face, man. <laughs> <laughs> How old are you? I don't even know. Uh, 27. Youngin. How old are you? 29. Oh, damn. <laughs> but but what is age, right, really? Well, I mean, yeah. Totally. Who's lived more? <laughs> it's impossible I think to you've know. Been, I think you've been to more countries than me. Oh, man, that's, that's not a valid metric. No. <laughs> oh, that reminds me what I was going to ask before. Mm. So, time. This actually segues nicely into time. So, damn, I see I'm asking you something that's not meant to be spoken about again. It's cool, man. I actually agree with what you just said. We could talk about anything, you know? Yeah. The the hesitation is the problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm working on that. So, one of your one of your blog posts was something about how you'd been up on the mountain spending time meditating. And you'd like not had a clock or something or no contact. And you said something like you'd lived a hundred years or time had completely slipped away. So in my meditation, I've started to see glimpses of that sort of realm, I guess, or state or state of mind or something like that. So I don't know what you want to say about that. But if you can have timeless experiences when meditating why not just go off and disappear into that world wouldn't that mean like a longer life a richness to life yeah i mean i think we're never we're never not there right i mean there's there's an infinity in in every moment you know like I, i used to do this thing a little bit of just listening to a really slow metronome but it doesn't matter whether it's fast or slow. I mean, there's still an infinite space in between them. It's to do with like a, a quality of mind. Um, so I've, I've definitely had experiences before where I'm on retreat and you spend a lot of time when, you know, it's this thing that happens all the time. It's a thought pattern when you're, especially when you're meditating and especially on the first few days of a retreat where your mind will come back to, oh, I just wish they'd ring the bell. Oh geez, I just wish I, yeah, oh, I wish lunch had come. You know, I just wish. Oh, oh, I want to go and have a rest. I want to, and then you're always thinking about the future or the past. And then you, you, I mean, you make an active practice in session to silence those thoughts and come back to where you are. Um, and and doing that enough uh, opens up this this feeling of timelessness. Um, so after three four days, I often have the experience of just losing track completely. I mean. It, you know, it's, I mean, you can kind of conceptualize all these things about it, but I mean, if you sit there and watch, you know, like a beam of light just kind of moving with the sun, I mean, that takes forever. You know, the, the, the watched kettle literally never boils. Wow. <laughs> I don't know if I could watch sun moving across the floor. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing better to do when you're meditating. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But that's, you know, it provides 
provides these kind of insights you know like when you fall asleep and then you wake up like a second later i mean what what does that mean about our conscious reality of time and i think even you know i don't don't know too much about quantum physics but i think actually the the latest understanding is that like time is completely um relative and not uh kind of this objective constraint that's out there in the world um it just it depends on so many conditions it's like interlocked with gravity and it's interlocked with all of these physical forces um yeah i just kind of i think time's against my religion you know (laughs) wow (laughs) i just have no faith what's your religion again buddhism yeah drew bourgeoisism christianity (laughs) early ages christianity yeah man i'm so into plain chant (laughs) (laughs) oh wow yeah, I've definitely had like crazy realizations like that. Standing in the center of infinity. Yeah, that's nice. That's one that I had. And uh, <laughs> Finn, our friend Finn actually turned up right when I'd been <laughs> sitting there. <laughs> and we, I think we were house sitting or something in the in the gong. And he turns up after his day and I just look him in the eye and I go I'm standing in the center of infinity like this <laughs> and he goes man I have no idea what you were talking about <laughs> but so how do you stand in the center of infinity when you have no legs I don't know or well you can't escape the center of infinity yeah it's true I mean I guess you wouldn't I guess you would be in the center of infinity you couldn't do something well, I don't know. Maybe you can. Maybe maybe because it's all infinite, it counts standing as well. Infinity was one of those, like, online, I guess, psychological mechanisms that I took an interest in for a bit. And I found all these people talking about, like, it was this sort of fringe meditation talking about how these mathematicians had gone crazy trying to deal with infinity and that was sort of their way of approaching enlightenment through maths so it wasn't the path of meditation or knowledge or religion but it was like hardcore maths also leading to the same summit so that old thing about all paths lead to the same peak or something like that and the way they did it was trying to tackle infinity like, how do you quantify infinity? What do you do to put it into an equation? What do you do to... Because you, you can't. It's it's a complete... The, I mean, even just now, I'm getting a bit of a sense of the, you know, like infinity, the pushing up against the wall. And I think I think some of those mathematicians really got frustrated with it. Like, it wasn't a very blissful enlightenment. It was more like a insanity but yeah yeah it's i i was almost going to study with this philosopher that i'm really into um graham priest he's a really hardcore kind of logician looks a lot of this mathematics alive or dead he's alive and he's kicking um australian european uh he's american but he was posted in melbourne university for a while but now he lives and teaches at um city uni in new york yeah um but he wrote this book uh beyond the limit of thought you know he's really interested in these paradoxes that occur at the end of thought this hardcore logical way but one of the things he was talking about was like set theory you know this this way in mathematics of 
defining and then dealing with sets of infinity as uh, as mathematical objects and how this kind of opened this whole world of mathematics. I mean, he's a he's he did, calls himself a non-classical logician um, and believes in uh, like a dialethicist. So you can I, have. I need to get my head around this non-classical logician. Yeah. So it's logic but not from like your Plato's and your Aristotle's. Exactly. So like, um, so Aristotle has the law of non-contradiction, right? Yeah. Either it can exist or it can't exist, right? Either it is a teacup or it's not a teacup. Um, and I mean, that just flows through to the whole of logic. I mean, like it's all Western logic is based on that. I mean, he did a lot of Zen training and it's a perfectly legitimate question in, um, in Zen, like, you know, there's, there's a case of um, an old teacher standing in front of an assembly and uh, holding up a staff. And he says, you know, call it a staff and you lose your life. Fail to call it a staff and you deny reality. What is it? Speak, speak, speak. Yeah. I mean, no one fucking says anything, you know, but like you could have just said, it's a staff. I don't know. Like, or, <laughs> like But anyway, um, uh, or you could have like taken it and hit him over the head with it. That'd be quite a nice one. Quite Actually, zen. I think there's a Zen co- a Zen story about that. Yeah, that Alan Watts tells. Can I interject? Sure. That he's so the Zen teacher is walking with its with their students, his students, and he picks up a stick and he says, "What is it?" Because you're not meant to hesitate. The student hesitates, so he hits him with it, and then another student says, "Give it here so I can see," and then he throws it to the student, and the student hits the teacher with it. <laughs> but so tell me about this non classical logician yeah so we have this law of non-contradiction right can't yeah. be and can't not be yeah um now in india um in uh, i think it's nagarjuna is this buddhist philosopher um indian buddhist philosopher um who wrote a lot about mathematics and logic and things like this he has like a quadrilemma so you've got two things there either it is or it is not um he approaches logic from this position of four options so it either is is not is and is not and um is neither Neither. is nor not (laughs) so uh but you know like this i mean it's a paradox right is and is not it's a teacup and it's not a teacup you're existing and you're not existing you're speaking and you're not speaking. There is a self and there's not a self. I mean, these are the fundamentals of a lot of Buddhist traditions in bringing about insight. Um, and he's, I mean, he's just really interested in that. I mean, you know, then to come back to this set theory thing with with mathematics, um, you know, you get this paradox when you say, I mean, they call it the, the barber, the village barber paradox, right? So... Um, the village barber cuts everyone in the village's hair who doesn't cut their own. So does the barber cut his own hair? Because he's cutting everyone who doesn't cut their own, but then he would be cutting his own. You see what I mean? It's this cycle paradox, right? So the set of all sets contains itself and you get this loop, this paradox. And his kind of argument is, well, that's, something to do with the boundaries of thought and you find it in all these different schools of philosophy from all around the world these limits of thought 
which created a little paradox. It's kind of where thinking stops and shit talking begins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, a big breakthrough for me in my ways of thinking about life was being able to be comfortable with paradoxes. And that was just so liberating. So is it a teacup or not a teacup? <laughs> it's it's neither both. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> but yeah, a thing that helped me was seeing how they're opposites, but they're also related and they're also in a spectrum. So they're, they're, a lot of paradoxes or a lot of opposites can be put into a scale of how different they are. So if you have night on one end and day on the other, there's actually a dawn and a dusk in between. Mm. And so if you look at the teacup and you say, well, is it or is it not? You can say, well, at one point it, it was not a teacup. Those yeah. atoms were not. It was night. And right now it's day. And pretty soon or sometime, we don't know when, it will not be a teacup. So in that sense, it is both because it's on that, that scale of opposites. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's interesting. I think that's a really kind of Taoist way of thinking about it. You know, this yin-yang thing. I, I, I did a little bit of um, qigong for a while with this um, this guy who studied a lot of um, Chinese martial art. It's like a meditative energy tai chi type of thing. Um, so it's not sitting meditation. It's more like It's a standing moving or, meditation. Yeah. It's definitely not fighting, but it's more like movement. Um, you do it under trees. <laughs> um, but he talked about, you know, you have this kind of yang of night and yin of day, and then you have the point where yin and yang collide, which is day and night, uh, and that's where all the energy is, right? So, I mean, putting aside these kind of metaphors or, or ways of thinking in terms of energy, um, I mean, maybe that maybe that's cool. Maybe it's not. I have no perspective. But the the kind of Chinese word for this point of collision is is dan qian, you know. The collision of yin and yang. I mean, so is it a teacup or is it not? You can't argue with the fact, right? <laughs> yeah. I think it's going to rain. Seems a bit smoggy for rain. You know, it's it's actually amazing um, when it does rain here um, because you can see a storm coming in over the ocean. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's just something so wild about being able to see so far. We were here one night and there was this huge lightning storm coming in over the ocean. And, I mean, you just behold the majesty of it you know i mean i don't mean to sound christian but like <laughs> it's it's right i was raised christian so yeah yeah i mean i just think it's it's incredible i mean there's just so much power it's something that people in the solomon islands actually are um are really um aware of i mean they have to be um tidal waves earthquakes cyclones like house destroying cyclones this is just part of their reality and always has been i mean but they're also dealing with the effects of climate change it's only going to get worse for them their economy's screwed is um, climate change real yeah i mean well 
<laughs> is and is not, but like it is. No, no, no. Right? I don't mean no, no, no. So hang on. I I realize what I just said is not really best. Following on from our paradoxical question <laughs> about is the teacup real? Okay, philosophy and Zen aside, mm-hmm. let's forget about that. I actually want to ask if you can tell me is climate change real? Yeah, I mean, I just I feel like we have to. We live in a society that's structured in a way in the West where we um, we segment people into certain areas of expertise. Right? It's something to do with democracy where um, everyone, you know, like it used to be this old thing of everyone knew, like one philosopher king or whatever knew everything and was the guru. But now because of science and, and all these different disciplines that we've kind of culminated over time, we're doing things like an ant mine, like where an ant colony we're working together um to produce things that are bigger than any of us and so i just have to rely on the testimony of people who study things really in depth um in good faith and they're almost universally in consensus that like shit is happening i, I don't know are you skeptical or uh i'm skeptical about a lot of things but i also trust a lot of things <laughs> uh, is that too paradoxical? I don't know. <laughs> is that dodging the question too much? I don't feel strongly about it, and I'm happy to hear opinions about it. My, I'm not very politically aware, so okay. I'm very open to being educated on political sciences, methods, trends, what I should do to vote, what I shouldn't do to vote. My mm. main effort is my own I need to take care of like I've got too much to deal with on my too much to deal with on my own front to really spend time thinking about politics yeah I agree politics is a mugs game and and I see a lot of these kind of public intellectuals that I really like they get bogged down into into politics because as soon I mean politics relies on agreement and disagreement and I mean, that's you're always just going to have to have that. I mean, it, and it, to some extent, it's kind of um, constructive, like this this kind of game of judo or something, where you use your opponent's weight and you're throwing each other around and all these things. But I just think it's because it relies politics on any level, from you know the housemaid who doesn't clean the dishes to global governments. You're entering into a space of has or has not is right or is wrong and as soon as you enter into that space you're disconnected from what it is to be fundamentally human i'm not saying that it's not necessary to do these things i mean it's also i mean it's that constant challenge right of you know something like meditation is is the act of passivity to a large extent i mean you're sitting there and you're you're going inward you're looking at yourself and how does that relate to making positive change in the world? Is it not just this egotistical thing to sit down and do it? I mean, I, I kind of have some fundamental hope and belief that working on your own mind actually just has the ex- naturally will grow and extend into the world and create things that you want to create, right? Um, I mean, if you are in a situation where you're talking to somebody that disagrees with you and and you get angry, it's going to have a very different rippling effect to if you are 
somehow in control of how you feel in that moment and your and your mental states and emotional states so you're more calm about it because of a meditation practice yeah and i mean i i just i I think when we think about something like climate change right i mean it's so huge and it's going to affect so many people and it's just going to have this like huge effect and then we think about how small we are but i actually think that something like meditation working on your tiny pool and allowing that to extend into the world i mean also i think if you're not if you're meditating for yourself then you're not really doing it right there's something in that moment when you let go that connects you compassionately to all beings of the world and harnessing that feeling like focusing on that and like bringing yourself back into this this bodily sensation of motherly compassion for all beings will have the result of you doing actions that reflect that in the world you know i mean that's that's all we can do about these small things you know kind of less interested in talking about politics and more interested in trying to be a good person yeah i think we're definitely on the (laughs) same wavelength there yeah yeah you you ask the you ask the good questions man that's a good way of putting it delve in where i where i need to need to think about these things the other thing that that shits me about politics is because i listen to osho and he's always making fun of them (laughs) one of his jokes something like i'll never tell it as fancy as he does but he goes a monkey and a politician are sent on a mission to the moon and when they arrive they they have their envelopes for their instructions so the the monkey opens up his it says, check oxygen levels, check cabin pressure, check supplies, contact mission control, check fuel levels, check criticals. The list goes on for a while. And the politician opens up his and says, take care of the monkey. <laughs> <laughs> but Osho was always telling those sorts of jokes at the expense of the politicians. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of good, you know. I mean, it seems to be something particularly corruptive about power. And so if you're going to make fun of anyone, maybe make fun of the powerful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or yourself. Yeah. <laughs> that might be too easy for me. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Um, <clears throat> we were talking just before this about, about India and this kind of ashram practice. Um, uh, when I was in India... Yeah, tell me more about that. I, yeah, I went to... Um, to Rishikesh, which is this place on the um, the River Ganges, uh, Ma Ganga, where it starts, right, close to the Himalayas. Um, it's a super beautiful place, um, but full of spiritual tourism hippies from all around the world. They all go there to be on the river and, and do their thing. And I mean, it's cool. It's a vibe, actually, to, to just have these people come from just all around the world. Just trying to hide there. that skepticism or yeah. <laughs> about spiritual tourism there. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think development, like injection for India will be good and then people don't always take away bad experiences from these things. Anyway. Whoa. <laughs> but I, so I, I, I didn't do a kind of ashram experience in Rishikesh, but I did take my backpack with my tent in it and I went hiking up into the mountains. Um, and then I came across this guy who's living in a mud hut um, just on the side of this mountain with like some clearings. Um, and he was like a, a kind of Hindu holy man, like a Baba. Um, he wasn't a priest 
far from it, you know, but we kind of hung out heaps and we just kind of lived this religious life and we'd cook food together and we'd have people come through from all walks of life. We'd have wandering sadhus, wandering priests. They'd come through and we'd say, have some food, you know, have some... Um, how did you get food? What, what what sort of stuff were you eating? Uh, a lot of dried kind of foods, like dal and things like that, which you can prepare. We had water, like mineral water flowing there. I mean, water you can't really drink in India anywhere, but in this place, it was just natural mineral water and it was great. It was some of the best water I've ever drunk. Um, wow. Yeah. But we had this one guy come up when I was staying with Baba, um, who was uh, studying in an Osho ashram. He was kind of like, I mean, he, he was kind of cracked out. He was definitely a pretty interesting character. Um, but he was talking about this kind of laughing meditation that he was doing and, and all these different things. And Yeah, the, the Mystic Rose is one of the most, like, hardcore Osho meditations that I've heard about. Well, what this guy was saying is, like, he's more or less just, like, like laughing or, like, you know, doing really short breaths, like... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. He's hyperventilating, right? And I mean, it's going, if you do that for long enough, it's going to change the physical qualities of your brain. You're not going to have as much oxygen there. And then you're going to, you're going to trip out. <laughs> you know what I mean? If you don't pass out. But I don't know. For me, like, you know, I, I just kind of have this end bias. And for me, I would go, well, this is just special effects, you know? But then I'm kind of also into running. And I think, you know, that's probably a similar thing. It's a different way of breathing that facilitates some sort of like heightened experience. So, yeah, there's a lot of pretty out there Osho meditations that I've got into recently in there. If you walked in halfway through one of these, you know, group meditations, I think you'd, you'd really not know how to make sense of anything that's going on. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, fundamentally what matters is that people are coming together and and training or exploring their minds, you know, and it's like, you know, in Zen, it's like, is it Zen training or is it Zen, um, uh, you know, or are there these other names that we can have for it, which are less militaristic? Yeah. Um, it's kind of all at the same time, you know, but what's, what's really important is people coming together and holding space for each other to lose, to work inward, you know, I mean, music, instrumental music for me is a lot of the time like this, you know, you kind of go to a gig and, you go there and everyone's got their eyes closed and you think what what is the music in this scenario you know it's actually just it's kind of some kind of some conduit to hold space for people to experience themselves i mean that's not all the music is but there's definitely some of that so you're into all sorts of musics hey yeah yeah because i, I think different i think we go back to wollongong con years yeah man it's probably when i first met you and I was doing jazz piano there. And yep. you were doing drums, right? Yeah. I can remember, though, I think you and Finn and someone else did a gig <laughs> oh, at the Long Kong, Kong, like in this Don't like, bring that children's up. ensemble. But no, like, you know, you took this big solo, you know, it was like, and you were like a few years older than me and whatever. And it was like, I just remember it blowing my mind, like this extended <laughs> piano solo. Wow. Yeah, man. So you're the one I impressed. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that man. We just like you don't. You're never conscious of how much of an impression you're making on other people. You know, in any circumstance. I once released this album of music, and then I had someone that was like a friend of a friend or a relative of a friend come to me like two years later and go, "Oh man, I listen to that every day," or like you know for like two days. <laughs> but <Yeah>. like <laughs> it's yeah. 
and I just thought that I'd done this thing and then no one had engaged with it at all anywhere. You just can't monitor this shit, you know? Yeah. For the better, you know? You just kind of got to have, like, faith in your own value. <laughs> have you got any current albums you want to talk about or plug or... Yeah, I mean... What was like, that thing you were saying before about your app? Yeah. So you built an app. I think that's just incredible because apparently they're just an absolute nightmare to get together. Yeah, it's kind of fun. I'm kind of really into it. But it's so... so I might, do, you, do you write code? Yeah. Um, and then like, yeah, do some design stuff. But I taught myself to, to code. I mean, you're always standing on the shoulder of giants, you know. No one actually goes in when it comes to coding and goes, oh, well, I have to figure out how to connect this hardware component to this hardware component, right? All of that is already written. You just ref re refer to this this packet of predetermined information and you're, you're more or less just like weaving them together, you know? Kind of just feel like a, a, a person weaving a basket, you know? Um, but it, yeah, I mean, I, t I loved it. It was a like stimulating activity i recorded this music two years ago I'll, I'll explain the project a little bit with uh, my trio san which is my brother and novak Manolovich, um and it's kind of long form improvised music we just went into the studio and and played for a day and and made and got all these long recordings some of them quite nice what uh instruments what instrumentation yeah so there's piano and there's electric guitar and there's drums and percussion um and is it a person for each instrument or yeah swap no it's we're pretty like classical like that you know instrumentalists um but then we we made these recordings and then we kind of all went overseas for like extended periods of time and so we didn't spend much time together so it was just kind of sitting there and i'm thinking well, what can i do for this project um it, it's not the kind of music that works in this spotify playlist culture like you can't jump from kanye west to like a half hour meditative improv you just it just doesn't work. It's It kind of needs to be curated into a particular space. Um, and I feel like, you know, most other mediums are just kind of like romantic uh, kind of hangovers. I mean, you can't, like, I don't have a CD player anymore. I don't have a, a vinyl player. Oh. I, I kind of wish I did, right? Yeah. But the reality is that... I'm still on the CD player. Yeah. I mean, the reality is, though, like, if you make a CD, like, you're just going to kind of spend a lot of money and not many people are going to get access to it. Some people are, and sometimes it's worthwhile. Yeah. But I thought, actually, what I want to do is find some way to make a digital sanctuary, something like this, a dedicated, highly curated space where people can, can have a lasting and deep connection to the experience of exploring this music. So... I, I kind of developed an app and I made some videos with some friends. Um, uh, you know, a friend of mine, Natan uh, Shlomo, he's like uh, made a, a really amazing 10 minute video. Um, and, and so you download this app through the app store, it's gonna be free. And then you're gonna have the music and these videos and um, some sort of space to be able to consume that that's away from most of the other thing that happens when we get onto our light box and scroll through and yeah. get bombarded with information. Is the app live now? No, it's, I mean, it's live on my phone, but I just need to put on the finishing touches. I'd say in a few months, it'll be ready to go. Nice. Or even less. And it's, it's free. Yeah. So it's what a gift to humanity or is there any 
want to generate something from it, generate money from it, or I mean, there's a, there's a donate button there because it you know it costs a lot of money to make these things, but it's not um I I can't help but think that what I want to do with music has to be a economic. As soon as I start to make it about trying to make money or things like this, it somehow changes the quality of what I'm trying to do. It's like this offering thing, you know, or like, you know, you don't do like 3,000 prostrations because you want to be reborn in a good life. I mean, what people do, I mean, they do in China, but I, yeah. I just like, for me, it's it's just kind of like something else. It can't be economic. A different motivation. Yeah. We didn't talk about drugs. Oh, you want to talk about drugs? Do you want to talk about drugs? I don't know if I should talk about drugs, man. I mean, I have to, but it just seems like a bit of a cliche, doesn't it? To yeah. talk about meditation and then go, what about drugs? Drugs, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's how you know when it, like, that's a, actually a classic. It's become like a meme now when a YouTuber creator or a content creator starts talking about drugs. Yeah, yeah. You're like, ah, oh, they're, the, they're on the way out, man. They've run out of ideas. It's funny though, like I do have one really nice little thing to say about drugs. I mean, I've got lots of nice things to say about drugs, but like... You like drugs? I mean, my <laughs> um, one of my Zen teachers, you know, somebody asked her in this kind of public forum, oh, if, if you take some sort of psychedelic drug and you have this profound experience... Or you do 20 years of meditation and then have some sort of similar profound experience. What's the difference? She said, 20 years of meditation. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of profound, you know. It's a, it's a very... That's over my head, man. Yeah, mine too. Have you heard the theme song for this podcast? No. It's, it's the song Over My Head. Oh, really? Yeah. Cool. It's by a Canberra band, Dub Dub Goose, which was ANU jazz school students playing reggae. Oh, wow. So it was a really good band, really hot run time band. Really hot rhythm section. But maybe I'll put the outro music under this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'll be saying it's over my head, and you'll hear the girl singing. <laughs> yeah, singing yeah. is no wait, it's wait, is it over my head or out of my head? No, it's over my head. Over my head. Well, whatever the song is, it's over my head. <laughs> That's too much of a paradox man. I can't get my head around that talk like this talk like this talk yeah, like this okay talk. okay this is gonna work this is not so good this is definitely like... uh, uh, <laughs> we're chanting <laughs> Thanks for bringing the recording here to my house and having a cup of tea and a yarn. Thank you so much, man.